Good morning. Today we are going to continue on our New Testament survey as we go through um, trying to just gain some biblical literacy in regards to the themes that we see in Scripture and some of the details in the books along the way. And today we're going to be continuing in our look at some of the epistles in the New Testament. We're going to continue. Uh, We did Romans last week and we'll be in 1 Corinthians this week. And if you have your Bibles open, we'll just read the first couple verses and then pray and dive in together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. We want to learn more about who you are and what you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the church that we're able to gather to teach and learn about these amazing truths, about your holiness, about your goodness to us. We pray for your help this morning, that your spirit be present and active, working in our hearts to teach us through your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great things about the way the New Testament was written is that some of it's really intensely personal. We do not always understand the great truths um, of God from beautiful books on teaching, um, but we get those from books like Romans that we saw last week. But we sometimes get the opportunity to peek over the apostles' shoulders as they deal with real problems with real churches in the New Testament period. But before we dive into the book of 1 Corinthians, we need to set a bit of the context. So as we just read, you saw the author of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul. Um, The audience is the church in Corinth. So I pulled up some maps to try to help us kind of see geographically where um, the church of Corinth was located at. And if you'll see on the map, on the screen, it's kind of a picture of um, the Mediterranean. So you kind of get to see a wide range of what's going on. So the church actually started in Israel around um, that area, but Corinth is way across the Mediterranean. It's like between the Italian boot and Israel. So it's way over there. And Paul actually planted this church on his second missionary journey. So he was over in Corinth, and God actually called him to go there, and he was there for about a year and a half. But Why did Paul go to Corinth? Other than God's calling, why would um, he go there? Well, it was actually a diverse and a very large city in the southern part of Greece. So it actually had a lot of commerce. It was a common trade city. Um, It was popular for trade, not only um, amongst the Greeks, but actually even um, for North Africa um, and and over in um, Asia Minor as well. So It was very populated. Um, It had about at least a half million people, up to maybe 700,000 people in this city. So it was a very prosperous town. It was famous for some Ismithian Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games. It happened every two years, which drew in large crowds of people and traffic. So the bad news is that Corinth was not known for its morality. It was quite the opposite. It was actually a lot of debauchery. So even 
um, modern um, poets would make fun of Corinth. It was bad to be a Corinthian. Um, there was no national pride. It was known for its debauchery and its moral depravity. So Corinth actually had a Ancropolis, which is just a high city, um, and it was both for defense and for worship. And so they had pagan temples up on this high hill, and the most famous temple was the temple to Aphrodite, which is the Greek goddess of love. And at this temple, there was a, around a thousand priestesses that would come down every night, basically as religious prostitutes, into the city. So um, this was a city that would, we would compare to more like Las Vegas type, type uh, of city. So it's full of immorality, full of worldliness and sinfulness. And Paul was called to go here. And um, in around 50 AD, he had been um, at Corinth, stayed there for a year and a half and planted a church. From there, he headed out to Ephesus and then back to Jerusalem. And it was actually this letter he wrote on his way through his third missionary journey. So he had actually corresponded with the Corinthians. And some of the context here can be a little bit confusing because you read through the letters and you see you're almost like picking up on a correspondence between two people it's like getting somebody else's mail, almost. You open it up, whoops, I thought it was mine. You're trying to read through it and figure it out. So this is actually the second letter he had written to the church at Corinth. Um, he references a previous letter that is now lost to us. So it's referred um, among um, historians as the lost letter. And then 1 Corinthians would be the second letter that he actually wrote. And then there's a third letter that isn't 2 Corinthians. It's actually referred to as the severe letter that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. And then 2 Corinthians would really be the fourth letter. So... Numerically speaking, we have 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians, but uh, for reference today, we'll refer to it as 1 Corinthians. So jumping into the letter, um, there's really a huge issue with the church at Corinth. And the issue of the church um, during this time was worldliness. Um, worldliness. So the issue at hand was worldliness, pride, sinfulness, all mixed into this church body. And if you look with me at our outline there's really two ways to, to kind of split up the letter. The first half of the letter will have chapter 1 through chapter 6, and this is all about personal reports. So you see in chapter 1, um, in verse 11, it says, uh, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is some quarreling among you. And so he talks about these quarrels, these issues that have come up in the first six chapters. And then from chapter 7 through the end of the book, um, you can refer to it as kind of the letter. Um, there's a letter that the Corinthians wrote back from Paul's first letter, and he's responding to those questions, to those um, concerns that the church had that they needed Paul's help to address. And on the second half, the trigger word for you guys as you're studying through it on your own is now. When he says now, he kind of transitions to the next issue. It's almost like he had a checklist after reading their letter. Okay, they had questions about marriage, Christian liberty, worship in the local church, about the resurrection. And so that's the word that kind of triggers you onto topics that he talks about. Um, he'll use the word now. Now, you know, regarding the issue that you, you questioned. And so that's kind of the way um, to split up the letter as you kind of dive into it um, and look at it. So today we're not going to go through it chronologically, chapter by chapter, but I thought what would be more helpful for us is to kind of gauge what is the, the aim or the themes that we see in this book. So the aim for Paul in addressing the worldliness of the Corinthian church was to direct them toward a gospel-centered church life. He wanted them to be gospel-centered, and so in each of these issues, he really addresses 
with them how the gospel is supposed to be applied in these several different issues. And there's three themes that I think um, are characteristics, maybe, that, that would be helpful for us to pull out and kind of see as we look through the book of 1 Corinthians. And those three themes um, for a gospel-centered church are for unity, for holiness, and to be edifying. So the church is supposed to be unified. It's supposed to be holy, and it's supposed to be edifying to one another. And these are the three issues that you'll see strung through and interwoven throughout all the topics. So the first one we're going to talk about this morning is united. So united. If you flip with me, um, if you're not there already, to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there is no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then scroll down to verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is addressing a big divisive issue that's come up in Corinth that he heard about from other church members. Basically, the church had been claiming that they're, they're going to pick their favorite. They have celebrities, right? Which we would expect from a Hollywood-type city. Um, it's going to have celebrities. And these celebrities were people during this time that that was their job. Their job and occupation was to be an orator. They were public speakers that got paid to share knowledge and give intriguing thought. And, and knowledge was really a, almost like a currency of the day for the Greeks. Knowledge was highly valued. And so Paul is writing and appealing to them to say, this is, this is not how it's supposed to look. You guys are getting it all wrong. And the way he addresses it is just an amazing biblical text. Um, if you look at the second half of chapter 1, um, I really want to just read um, verses 26 through 31. But right before that, he, he talks about the gospel and how it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews wanted a sign of something miraculous and the virgin born, dead and raised to life Messiah who's reigning in heaven was not the sign they were looking for. They wanted somebody to come, punch the Romans in the face, take over this local kingdom and reign. But that's not the sign they were looking for. And the Greeks, they, they don't understand. They're saying, this is foolishness. Why would I trust in somebody who died why, why would somebody dying for my sins matter? Because in their mind, the famous uh, philosophy of dualism, I mean, the, the physical body was, was seen as something that was evil, and then the spirit was something that was good. And so they had this dichotomy set up. And so to them, physical body, sacrifice, and atonement didn't really make sense with their worldview. So, but God designed the gospel in this way for this purpose. If you look at verse 26, we'll read together. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human might boast in the presence of God. That's the purpose. Why is the gospel this way? So that God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. And the problem with this divisive church is that they were trying to glorify men. 
problem here is classic. They, they, they worshipped the messenger rather than actually the message, right? They replaced it. They weren't focusing on the content of what it said about our Lord and Creator. They actually just cared about who was the fanciest, most charismatic or outgoing or bubbly or exciting or fun speaker to listen to and watch. And they got it all wrong. If we continue reading, he says in verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. There's that knowledge piece that's super important to the Greeks. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, and then he quotes Jeremiah. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. They had their boasting all wrong. And he doesn't say, you guys are proud, don't boast. He directs it. He says, this is the one who we're supposed to be boasting in. It's the Lord. And so he does this um, shift of focus. He says, I'm going to take your focus off of these men, these individuals, and I want to place it on Christ alone. And that's what we see as a key for unity in the church. We need to focus on Christ alone. If you flip a couple pages over in chapter 3, um, there's some verses that help point out again a topic of unity, but it's actually an antonym, a, kind of an opposite that gives us a definition. So what disunity looks like. He says is in verse 3 and 4, he points out that worldliness and immaturity are the marks of disunity. Right? If you are not unified, this is what it looks like, and this is why it is that way. He calls them infants of Christ. He calls them worldly in uh, verse 3, just says, you are still of the flesh. But these are people that we read earlier, right? And in the first opening verses, he calls them saints, called by Christ. So he, he considers them believers. These are people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But they're struggling, They're struggling to detach from the worldly culture that they've been brought up in and that they're coming out of. So disunity looks like that. It looks like worldliness and immaturity. And then thirdly, the third um, theme I want to kind of draw is is over in chapter 12. So flip over with me to chapter 12, and we'll see this is is really something that's been um, new for me, is seeing this emphasis that Paul has in the theme of the church being the body of Christ. And I, I think this is something that we're familiar with. We'll say it, we'll verbally affirm it, we'll amen it, but um, to really capture how impactful this view was for Paul's ministry and his personal, um, even conversion. So in verse 12 of chapter 12, um, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. And if you scroll down to chapter, uh, in chapter 12, 2 verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. So where did Paul get this concept of the body of Christ? Was this just um, divine revelation, something he studied through the Old Testament and kind of came to a grasp of? I think if we remember back to Paul's conversion... That is the moment where he was impacted most severely and drastically. And if you recall, um, Jesus appears to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? Right? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church and detach it from himself? But he says, why are you persecuting me? And this is important for him to convey unity is that he draws this comparison between the body of Christ and the church. He's saying you are part, you are united with Christ. And this has huge implications for how we live 
today, here and now. And so the unity of Christ is what he draws as a comparison to say you shouldn't be divisive. Is Christ divided? No, absolutely not. We need to be united as Christ is. So the question for us this morning is, are you concerned with unity in the church? Do the words that you say about our church to others uphold or unravel the unity of God's church here at Redemption Hill? I think the implications are very high and practical for us. Is Are we concerned with unity here in our church? But unity isn't the only theme that you'll see throughout 1 Corinthians. If you flip back to uh, chapter 1, we also want to look at how Paul ties in holiness. Paul is constantly hammering in on holiness for the church at Corinth. And rightfully so. I think when we've um, even done a little background discussion on um, the church at Corinth and the debauchery there, holiness obviously was a topic that needed to be addressed, but it's, it's something we see throughout the whole of Scripture. We've seen a lot of God's holiness throughout the Old Testament and even in the gospel literature and a ton in Romans and even in the establishment of the church in Acts. But he wants to continue on this theme of holiness. And as we saw in the first uh, couple verses in chapter 1, um, you won't see the word holy as something that comes up over and over again. But the word that you, you get this from is when he says in verse 2, he says, To those sanctified, those that are set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, which saints is to be set apart from sin and in Christ. So that's, that's kind of where we'll draw this theme is the word sanctified, the word saints that he uses over and over again. And then if you flip over to chapter 5, this is kind of a huge, um, really unique characteristic, I think, of um, 1 Corinthians that helps us identify a, a live example of uh, church discipline. And for... For a lot of us that study God's word, it's easy to have theological truth and have an outline in our head of, do, 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 this is what we're supposed to do. But it's helpful in scripture when we see a model. Okay, this is how, how these words and truths that we have are supposed to be applied. This is what it looks like. Um, and it's um, the context here of chapter five is um, in the immorality section. So in chapter five, there's, there's an instance that's been brought up. We're still in the... Um, personal response here, um, and what happened was there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, so it was his stepmom, and these um, Corinthian believers basically accepted this man into fellowship at the church. They said, you know what, this is within your Christian liberty to do what you want to do with your body, so come on in and be a part of the church, and it's amazing here, Paul doesn't really take time to address the man directly, what he does is he's actually appalled with the church, the church's response to this sin. Um, one of the commentaries I read was there, was there was an immune system breakage, right? The immune system of the church was failing because it wasn't rejecting this foreign substance, this, this unholiness that was going to be allowed within the body of Christ. And so if you look here at verse 6, he actually says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin is contaminating, and sin ought to be outside of the church. It, and it's a pattern of sin, right? It's the acceptance of repeated over and over again sin. We're not perfect. We're being sanctified. We're being made pure. But the mark of a believer is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And that wasn't happening with this man. And the church's response 
was sinful. If we continue reading, we actually see um, a great example of how the New Testament helps us see what some of the imagery and the planning of the Old Testament pointed to, how it pointed to Christ. If you read with me in verse 7 and 8, it says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here we see um, mentioned of Passover, right? And we know Passover in the context of the Old Testament that we went through was God had rescued his people out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, and through the rescuing, there was actually the, the 10th plague was uh, there had to be a sacrifice. They had to kill um, an animal, and they had to take the blood, and they had to actually put it on their doorpost and doorframe. And that would let the um, sacrifice that was required, the angel of death, come over, and then they would be passed over. That's how they come up with the word Passover. And because there's, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, there's no forgiveness of sin, We had to have a Passover lamb. And he's saying here, Christ is that Passover lamb. He's the one that has atoned for sin. And then we can celebrate. He's saying we're allowed to have this festival, this celebration. And and it's not just annually anymore. It's constantly. It's all the time we get to celebrate because there's a once forever atonement for sin. And we are, he says, you're not an old leaven. You're not the old man, right? You're actually a new man. He said, the old is dead and gone. You are a new unleavened loaf of bread. And so this, this is a picture in the Old Testament that we see that actually points to its greatest fulfillment in Christ. It was supposed to help us see that we're supposed to be holy. That's what we're supposed to be. The church is meant to be holy. And that's why church discipline is necessary. It's necessary because God's church is called to be holy. And holiness is what's a requirement for eternal life. If you look, um, continuing in uh, chapter 6, if you look at verses 9 through 10, there's this side-by-side comparison of who will enter the kingdom of God and who won't. If you start in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, the unholy, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's very clear cut. These practices of sinful disobedience against a holy God will not be accepted. This will be rejected. God will judge for sin. But we see this beautiful comparison of what will Um, come into eternal life. In verse 11 it says, and such were some of you. He switches to all this past tense language, not saying that nobody who ever does this will ever be accepted into heaven, but he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we see holiness is not just the identity of believers. It's not just necessary in church fellowship and amongst the body of Christ, but it's actually necessary for eternal life. This is a requirement, and praise be to God that he satisfies this requirement that he has of us. He gives us holiness because he's the one that does the washing. He is the one who's done the sanctifying, as we saw in chapter 1, and he's the one that has justified us through Christ's righteousness. 
And continuing on our theme through holiness, if you look down in uh, verse 15 of chapter 6, um, he brings us this idea again of the body of Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So again, he, he points us into unity and holiness. He ties these themes together and he says, if you are part of the body of Christ and united with him, then you actually your body matters. Like, it's not this dualistic idea where your body's just evil and it doesn't really matter what, what happens to it. There's actually this requirement put on us. And he not only ties it with the body of Christ, but he gives us a second theme, just a couple verses down. He calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 19, um, right before that, actually, he, he gives the command. He says, flee sexual immorality. And then he gives us another word picture in 19. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And also, there's just kind of this snarky remarks throughout this whole letter. There's tons of questions because the, the Greeks value knowledge. And he's constantly like, do you, do you not know? Do you not get it? Like, this is real knowledge. Let's meditate on the truth. So he says, whom you have from God, are you not, you are not your own, he says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's, that's the aim of a gospel-centered church with all three of these themes we're going to look at is to glorify God. That's the end, right? That's the object of our aim as we, as we pursue um, holiness and unity and um, to be an edifying body of Christ. So um, in holiness, um, this theme that we see throughout um, all of Scripture, but especially in 1 Corinthians, the requirements are high, but, but Christ is the one who satisfies those. So I want us to ask us uh, of ourselves and of our church a couple questions. Are you concerned with the holiness of our church? Does that matter to you? Do you ask yourself, how's our church doing in regards to holiness? Are you actively and intentionally involved in guarding and guiding other members in our church toward holy living? You have to be involved. It's not a passive thing, pursuing holiness. It's interesting, just considering the two things that we've talked about so far, unity and holiness, um, often churches um, today, we see our job as kind of balancing those two. We see them as kind of different sides of the scale. And we don't address a particular sin in the congregation at a fear of almost fracturing unity. And so that's an example. Or on the other hand, there are some whose zeal for holiness maybe comes at the expense of unity. But Paul sees holiness and unity as going actually hand in hand. And if we begin to tolerate unrepentant sin in the church, problems with unity will rise up. But if we also hand, but we must also handle issues of Christian liberty with unity at the forefront of our attention, which we'll talk about in a little bit. If you're intrigued on how these two fit together more, I'd encourage you to take time to study through 1 Corinthians with that mindset, through that lens of holiness and unity together. This is our calling as a church, and we need to be aware of it and actively pursuing it. But not only do we have unity and holiness, but we also have edifying. Throughout the, the letter to 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to encourage the believers to be edifying to one another, which just means to build up, to strengthen, to encourage. He wants them to be edifying one another. And one of the ways we see that is over in chapter 8. So flip over a couple pages with me to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we see um, the beginning of 
And I'll flip back to our outline for some of you that probably want to write that down. We see the, the section opening up on Christian liberty, and he talks about several different things, specifically, but in chapters 8 through 10, and just in the introduction of 11, um, he talks about Christian liberty. And one of the things that's important for us to catch as a church is that to be edifying, we have to be willing to give up our rights. Okay, We have to be willing to give up our rights. And so when he talks about Christian liberty, he does a really good job of explaining the right and wrongs of it, the black and white of it, and then he actually dives even into the gray area. And he says, hey, let's talk about some specific examples of what it looks like. And the context of chapter 8 is he's talking about food that's been offered to idols. So there's pagan worship going on. They're living you know, in a world, but they're not supposed to be of the world. And there's idolatry going on around them. And so sometimes idol meat was cheap meat. Okay, and it was the best bargain for the best deal, and we got bargain shoppers in here. Everybody wants to get a good deal. But the question that the church asked Paul, since we're in the second half of the letter, is, is this okay? Is this, is this okay for us to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul goes on to address that in verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So he's saying, through this chapter, he says, idols aren't real. They're not real gods, okay? So it's, it's really not an issue. What we eat, whether we take it or don't take it, you know, it, it's not going to actually make us any better off or in worse standing with God. It's not the action or the consumption of food, but it's actually our heart condition that matters, which is why he's emphasizing holiness. But if you read down, he actually talks through verse uh, 9 through, we'll read through 13 in chapter 8. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So he's saying, really, we need to be willing to give up our rights. Just because in, within Christian liberty and in our understanding, we know this isn't a temptation, this isn't an issue for me. We actually need to also be willing to lay down that say, say this isn't something that I'm going to grasp onto. This is something that's going to be an issue for somebody else. I need to consider their needs more than myself. I don't want to cause another believer to sin or to stumble. We ought to lovingly serve one another. And, and later on in this book, he, he talks about whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you're supposed to do all to the glory of God. Again, that's our aim. In, in all three of these, you can see the glory of God um, as the centerpiece, which I think is really amazing to see that um, that theme really play out and that that's the question we need to ask of ourselves is am I seeking to glorify God in what I'm doing? That's the, that's, that's the litmus test. So in edifying, we ought to be um, not um, clinging to our rights but laying them down, which is almost un-American, some would say. And in our day and age, it's something that, you know, Especially the younger generation, they love to grasp onto their rights and then just smack people in the face with it. That's all they want to do with it. But the church ought to be different. The church ought to be different. We ought to be seeking the edification of other believers, not the gratification of ourselves. So a second theme that we'll see 
or not a second theme, but a second way we can see edifying in the book of 1 Corinthians is in chapters 11 through 14. Um, the church's role in being the body of Christ is a picture of um, how the church was supposed to be edifying. So in chapters 11 through 14, there was, um, it's labeled worship. There's kind of three primary ways that the um, local gathering of the church was having some, some squabbles over, and it was how um, men and women were supposed to, their roles in church, um, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, and the exercising of spiritual gifts. And in regards to the roles of men and women in the church, he instructed them to honor the order of headship established by God all the way back in Genesis. And Paul clarifies we are equal in the Lord and complementary in the Lord's work. Male and female roles are different in function and relationships, not in spirituality or importance. And at the abuse of the Lord's Supper, he calls them to, to not be divisive. He says, don't have divisions. Put that away and wait for one another. They're actually throwing potlucks and getting drunk, and the poor that would come would leave hungry and not even get any food because there was a bunch of selfish rich people that would just partake in debauchery. Okay? And it's like, this isn't even what the Lord's Supper is about. <laughs> We're supposed to wait for one another and to remember the Lord's death in union. Okay, communion is about the community being united about the Lord's death. We're supposed to partake of that together. And then thirdly, he talks about the exercise of spiritual gifts, uh, which we'll spend a little more time on, which actually starts over um, in chapter 12. So, in regards to spiritual gifts, this was um, mixed in with, you know, the public speaking profession um, back in this day. And they they kind of brought that into the church and said there's, there's, um, there's this hierarchy of, of gifts. There's this um, special giftedness of speaking in tongues. And some, some people had it, some people didn't. And they, some people in the church actually thought less of themselves. Okay? They were actually becoming depressed. They were like, well, I guess if I don't have these gifts, then I'm not really part of the body of Christ. I guess I'm excluded. Um, and that might sound familiar as a, something that even goes on in our day and age. And others thought too highly of their gifts. They thought, obviously, I have reached heaven because look at what I can do and want to show off and be overly um, boasting in their, own, in their own gifts. But um, Paul addresses this through the analogy of, again, the body of Christ, a key a key model um, in how he applied the gospel to the Corinthian church. And he says, should the foot say, since I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body? No, <laughs> all right? Anybody that's lost a limb would say, I would desperately wish to have that limb back. I don't function the same. That's not how it's designed, right? And then the eye shouldn't say, on the other hand, those that were boasting about the eye shouldn't say, I don't need the hand. You can just lose it, right? I, I, I'm, I'm the eye. I see what's going on here. I get rid of the hand. It's foolishness, and, and it would have made sense to them to say, wow, that, yeah, that's a really bad idea for us to get rid of these other gifts that God's designed for the edification of the church body. So Paul's guiding principle um, in regards to spiritual gifts was to excel in gifts that build up the church, okay? And he reminds them, they're called spiritual gifts for a reason. It's a gift, that means you didn't earn it, you didn't accomplish anything, so don't boast in it. It's not yours. You're actually um, supposed to be a grateful steward for God's glory. That's the purpose of your spiritual gifting. And we need to use our gifts in loving service for one another to build up. Again, edifying is something that's really um, a topic that was 
contrary to the Corinthian church because they were all about self and pride and boasting about their own arrogance. And he said, that's not what the church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look different. It's supposed to be contrary to the world. And so um, the third thing that I'll bring up in regards to edifying is, is teaching. Um, and, and all through this letter is tons and tons of teaching, but I wanted to throw in a couple unique um, aspects really quickly of uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's two chapters that I'd be remiss not to mention. Chapter 13 is the love chapter, a very common chapter. You probably know it well. You hear it at weddings all the time. Um, what's amazing to me is how almost out of context, not out of context, but applied to a marriage relationship that it gets taken when before in chapter 12 and after in chapter 14, it's all talking about spiritual gifts and how they're supposed to be edifying to the church body. So I would challenge you guys, read through 12 through 14 and put your, your lens or your, your, your thinking cap on of how does love apply to the way I act within the church body? And just read it through that lens to say, does this characterize the way I act in small group. Does this characterize the way I serve in nursery or I greet in church or I serve in the, on the worship team? Whatever it is that you do, that you're serving, is this the characteristic? Is love the thing that coats the way I'm serving the Lord and aiming to glorify him? So I would encourage you to read it through that lens. But I wanted to talk about the second chapter I was going to mention is chapter 15. Chapter 15 is um, titled kind of the resurrection chapter. So flip over there. And it's actually the most extensive teaching on the resurrection in the entire Bible, okay? Both of Jesus' resurrection and of the resurrection of believers in the future, that's, both of those are taught in the gospel literature of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we also, within this chapter, get a little nugget of the gospel, okay? A great, concise verse that we've mentioned before here at Redemption Hill that I'll remind you of is verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you of, as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel in two verses just packed right there. So get that, highlight it, mark it, memorize it, commit it to meditation. I mean, that's, that's where... You really want to have some of these verses that you can just pick out and lean on. Um, but I want to run through how really the resurrection was a huge issue for the church at Corinth as well. As we've mentioned uh, a little bit is this uh, ancient Greek philosophy of dualism where the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. Um, that probably crept into a little bit of the issues here. And again, the church here at Corinth wasn't saying that they didn't think Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul draws that conclusion if the resurrection isn't possible. But they, to be a believer, you have to trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he did raise from the dead. The issue here that Paul brings up is that you don't think that believers are going to be raised from the dead. And so he draws out all these, I mean, this is classic Paulian logic just blazed on pages here. And what he does is he says in verses 1 through 11, he gives evidences for Jesus' resurrection. He says the church is evidence of it, the scriptures are evidence of it, the eyewitnesses are evidence of it. He himself, as an apostle, saw the risen Jesus Christ, and it's the common message heard among you. So he gives all this evidence for why Jesus' resurrection is real, and then he goes into the consequences. So if, if there is no resurrection, there's no such thing as resurrection um, of believers, which would have been a, a crazy idea from um, their worldview of dualism. Then in 12 through 19, he gives all these consequences. Consequences 
um, if there is no resurrection. He says, preaching is senseless. Faith is useless. Preachers are liars. We're still dead in our sins. The former believers have perished, and Christians are most to be pitied. We're to be pitied if there's no resurrection. There's no, there's no future hope if there's no resurrection. So what I love about this chapter is it really pins down the issue. Okay, if you're trying to, in evangelism, talk to people, and they get out on all these side topics, just, just hammer it down and say, what do you think about the resurrection? Jesus is a real historical person. He made some claims. He died. What happened next? Do you think he rose from the dead or not? And just hammer it in on that and just say, this is the crucial issue because this is what our faith is, is hinged on. And there's amazing evidence for it. And, and I'll reiterate to balance it out here, just like in chapter one, we can't, you can't logically bring people to accept the gospel because God gets the glory. So it's not a mental ascent thing, but you do need to, through the Spirit's guidance, get people to a point to say, this is the real issue. I want you to meditate. I want you to think about this topic and see what the evidence of Scripture says, and then we pray. We pray that the Holy Spirit would bring him to a point of repentance and belief and trust that Jesus is risen from the dead. In verses 20 through 28, he draws conclusions of Christ's resurrection, which I want to briefly touch on because it points us forward. Okay, we've, we've got to talk about the Passover and some of the Old Testament and how that foreshadowed what we see in the New Testament, but we also want to look forward, okay? And the conclusions of Christ's resurrection, he says, but in fact, in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he goes on to talk about that this is a foretaste, right? He's the first fruits, that that means there's going to be others. Um, he's the fulfillment of past promises, and he makes believers alive at the return of Christ, Okay, the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead doesn't mean the story ends there. It means he's coming again. He's going to reign. And he talks about how Jesus will destroy every authority and power, that he will reign and defeat death and put everything in subjection to him. Okay, that is the good and happy ending when it's all as it should be, as he's promised and as he will fulfill. So it's important for us as a church body to not forget the future hope that we have because of our risen Savior. We have to aim at that. So um, in regards to the themes in 1 Corinthians, I would encourage you to write those down, that we are supposed to have unity as a characteristic of the church, that we're supposed to have holiness, and that we're supposed to be edifying to one another. So throughout this letter, Paul has faithfully applied the gospel in an onslaught of issues going on in the Corinthian church. And time after time, we see that the solution was that the church needed to be gospel-centered in these three ways, in unity, in holiness, and in edifying one another. And it's amazing how you see these kind of side themes of God's glory and love being raised up alongside and coded all over those three themes. So look for that. But let's consider these areas in our own lives and in our church here at Redemption Hill as we seek to glorify God by both being and making disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand these amazing truths of your plan for your church. We thank you that you've saved us, redeemed us, you've bought us, and you've brought us into a unique fellowship that you've actually made us part of the body of Christ. What a special gift and relationship. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us here at Redemption Hill to grasp onto that 
that truth and to apply it in our personal lives of the way we interact with others, the way we um, seek to love and serve others, that we would do it in an attitude that says, I want to be uh, made holy. I want to be united with this body. I want to uplift unity in our church and not be divisive. And I want to seek to serve sacrificially and give of even my rights um, as a believer to lay those down so that I can seek to magnify your holy name. And I pray, Lord, that you would do this work through your spirit in our church and that you would be glorified in it all. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.